Okay, welcome to the Physionic Journal Club. I am officially recording, so if you're watching this live, then I have the paper linked uh, in the chat as well as in the description box, wherever that's located for you guys. Uh, I'll be taking any questions that you have related to this paper just in general at the end of this particular journal club. And if you are listening to this after the fact on the podcast or watching this after the fact later on, this is the journal club. Therefore, it is going to be highly, highly, highly in depth. Uh, but if you if you miss certain aspects or you just don't understand particular aspects, don't worry. I will have follow-up content, which will be uh, showing with a bunch of graphs and all that stuff, well edited and more concise to the point so that you don't miss out on the information either. So the paper that we're going to be discussing today is fructose but not glucose impairs insulin signaling in three major insulin sensitive tissues. And again, uh, I've got the, uh, if you're listening to this now or after the fact, we I, I have uh, the particular notes that I took. So when I read through this, I, I obviously took notes, wrote them down in the margins for each graph, all that, you know, meticulously took notes. So, and then I retyped them up so that they are on my website, so physionic.org. And you should have a link so you can click to get the paper itself as well as the notes with all of my detailed information on how I went about. And I've got takeaways for each figure to, so that we can, you know, just to make things a little more understandable, uh, even if this is a journal club. So the introduction, what, did the, what, what is this study trying to figure out? Well, this f study is kind of like the title already says, it's trying to investigate the impact of fructose. And I think that's what's going to be most important here. Fructose, as well as glucose, but mainly fructose. And to make the, make sure that we have a distinction here, fructose does not mean high fructose corn syrup. High fructose corn syrup is 55% fructose and 42% glucose. And I'm going to have follow-up content on that specifically. So what's actually found in our food that is going to be another video that, or another piece of content that I'll cover. But how fructose and glucose have an impact on three different tissues, but specifically focused on diabetes as well as uh, inflammation, but more focused on diabetes. So the methods, how did they go about doing this? They used uh, 30 different female rats and they had three different conditions. So the first condition is the control condition wherein they ate normal food. So they consumed absolutely normal food amounts. So regular rat chow, mouse chow, and they had water so they could consume water. So they didn't have any added calories or any additions to that actual water. Then they had uh, another condition that was, well, let's see here, fructose condition. So the exact same, so in terms of consuming the same uh, chow food, but uh, they consumed an added 10% fructose 
into their liquid. So the liquid consumption, as opposed to just being water, they also added 10% fructose. And then they had a glucose condition, which is the exact same, but they added 10% glucose as opposed to 10% uh, fructose. Makes sense. They also measured consumption. They had anthropometric measures like weight and kind of the, the size of the animal, as well as then they eventually sacked the animals sacrificed the animals and removed uh, the white adipose tissue or their white fat, their body fat, uh, particular parts of their body fat, as well as their musculature and their liver. So those are the three tissues. And then they ran a bunch of molecular measures to figure out the, those tissues, insulin sensitivity, glucose, and inflammatory markers. And these rats consumed that diet, so the normal diet plus whatever condition, if that's control, then that's just water, fructose, 10% fructose, and 10% glucose in the glucose condition for two months. So they consumed it for uh, about eight weeks. Okay, so let's jump into the results. So I kind of skip around in, in my notes, uh, mainly because I wanted to paint a story that made the most sense. And the way that they had it, I didn't fully, I, di I didn't like the way that they structured it. So we're going to be starting with table three. So table three, there's table one, two, and then figure one, two, and three. Skip to table three. And this is where they're actually quantifying the amount of consumption between the three conditions. So the control condition, the fructose condition, and the glucose condition. And here they're measuring food intake, liquid intake, and I think more importantly, they're uh, looking at the amount of calories consumed. So interestingly here, we see that with glucose and with fructose, they consumed more liquid calories, which is an interesting finding already because that could mean that because there's that sugary addition to their liquid, that that leads to a massive overconsumption of that liquid specifically. Should we jump to any sort of addictive qualities? No, not necessarily. But it does imply that that particular source of nutrition is uh, more palatable for an animal that may not be thinking about their diet. Uh, so in a subconscious situation, then it could lead to greater consumption of uh, sugary beverages or sugary consumption in general. But interestingly, on the flip side, when they looked at the uh, consumption of food calories, so calories that are coming from the actual chow, they found a decreased consumption. So that was really interesting. So they ate less, but they drank more, leading to an overall caloric consumption that was substantially more. Now, the interesting thing here is that there was no difference between glucose and fructose conditions. So the control <clears throat> consumed less calories overall than both fructose and glucose, but fructose and glucose were no different from one another. However, then you look at their body weight, and their body weight was also not statistically significantly different. So that implies some interesting findings here as well that maybe the animals were moving more as a result. So the thermic effect of physical activity could have increased to make up for the fact that they were overconsuming so much on their liquid calories. And uh, then they also looked at 
Fasting insulin was elevated in fructose, although honestly, if you look at, and I made a note of this, that if you look at the fasting insulin levels for <clears throat> the glucose condition, it seems like that's certainly elevated as well compared to the control condition. So I'm not really sure where they get the idea that <clears throat> only uh, fructose was elevated, but glucose was not. But let's just assume, let's just go with their statistics that only the fructose had elevated uh, fasting insulin levels, which is certainly a hint already there that you are going to have uh, less insulin sensitivity with fructose. Uh, the other thing that they looked at was fasting glucose. So without consuming any food in fasting levels, where, where were these animals' blood sugar levels? And their blood sugar levels were not different, or at least not statistically uh, different between all three conditions. Fructose, glucose control didn't matter. Their blood sugar levels were the same. So that's certainly interesting. But if you pair that with the fasting insulin levels, that still is a bit concerning because you have higher fructose or higher insulin levels in the fructose condition. And then the other interesting finding was that with plasma triglycerides, so plasma fat levels, so the fat that's floating through your bloodstream, they found elevated levels in the fructose condition as well as in the glucose condition compared to control. So the control had the lowest levels of these plasma triglycerides. So really interesting uh, findings right there. So then I wanted to talk a little bit about figure one. Figure one is where they start looking at some of these molecular mechanisms. So they're looking at specifically hepatic tissue, which means that they're looking at liver tissue. So they extract liver, <clears throat> grind it up, get the proteins, and then they run that. And with that run, they're able to quantify through an experiment called a Western blot, which is probably one of the most, if not the most, popular form of measuring protein or molecular quantities of particular molecules in tissues or really just in anything in cells in general. And that'll tell you essentially how much of particular proteins or molecules that are in that particular uh, muscle or tissue that you're looking at. So here they're looking at liver tissue after they ground it up and they show that this is just a comparison between fructose and control. So they're not looking at glucose in this situation. And you're seeing uh, SFA, so saturated fatty acids, uh, monounsaturated fatty acids, and then two different types of polyunsaturated fatty acids. So with fructose, you see decreases in polyunsaturated fatty acid, which is quote unquote, without context applied, considered a beneficial fat. And you do see increases in monounsaturated fat. So you're starting to see this shift in dietary fat in terms of the, the actual lipids, the fats that are found within uh, the liver cells. So really interesting there. And then B just further substantiates that as well. Now C is something that's really interesting because SCD1, which is called steroid CoA desaturase, which is an enzyme. And what that does is it converts saturated fat, 
So <clears throat> when you think of saturated fat, you think of the saturated fat that people like to claim is uh, unhealthy. And I'm not going to make any sort of judgment calls on that right now. But you see this conversion of saturated fat to monounsaturated fat. So you're adding what's called a degree of unsaturation to that pro particular poly, uh, uh, polylipid chain. So that, that particular fat has a kink in it, and that kink is typically considered a positive. That's actually something that you want. So saturated fats don't have that kink. And our body is able to produce saturated fat. So although they showed that uh, there was no statistically significant increase in saturated fat intake or saturated fat production, uh, there is a switch from saturated fat to monounsaturated fat. So you're getting more of these monounsaturated fats. So for some reason, some strange reason, we don't really know why, with fructose, you see increases in the conversion of saturated fat to monounsaturated fat, and you see decreases in polyunsaturated fat. Now, figure 1D, you're looking at CH-REB-P, which is <clears throat> also named carbohydrate response element binding protein. And this is a particular protein or enzyme functional molecule that controls lipogenesis or fat synthesis. And that's essentially what we were talking about earlier uh, with this SCD1. That's a conversion from one fat to another fat, but this uh, carbohydrate response element binding protein is involved, heavily involved in the conversion of other molecules like a carbohydrate into a fat. And you see much greater levels of this particular protein in the fructose condition con compared to the control condition. So some really interesting research, some really interesting findings so far. Again, just as a reminder, if you are listening to this or watching this, I'll take questions uh, afterwards uh, just so that I can keep plowing through these figures, but I will answer your questions uh, afterwards. And I've got the notes, my notes, that I'm actually literally basing this off of uh, in the description box, so you can check that out as well as the paper itself. Okay, so figure two is where I want to take, take things next. Let's see, figure two. Where is that on here? I've got table two, but I don't see figure two. Ah, figure two. Okay, figure two. Here is where we're starting to get into insulin. We're starting to get into diabetes. And this is where, again, they're just comparing, comparing fructose to control, and they're looking at IRS. IRS stands for insulin receptor substrate. So insulin receptor substrate is a downstream molecule. So when insulin binds to the outside of the cell, whatever cell that might be, you have a, a cascade of different molecules that are going to be activated. Some of them are going to be inhibited. Some of them are going to be activated. This particular molecule is part of that insulin cascade, and it allows that signal to continue. So like, like being handed a, a
baton from one person to another person. You just keep passing it on, keep passing this message. If you've ever played the game, uh, telephone, where you tell somebody a message, whisper that message, then you whisper that that person whispers it to the next person. That's essentially a really basic way of looking at how these molecules communicate. It's really basic, but that is essentially what's happening. So insulin's binding and it's whispering, in a manner of speaking, to IRS to then whisper to another molecule and continue that signal to then allow for a particular transport protein to move. It essentially, all they all whisper to tell this one protein called GLUT4, and I'll touch on that later again, GLUT4 will then move to the membrane of the cell and allow blood sugar into the cell. So it pulls it out of the bloodstream. And when it does that, of course, then your blood sugar levels drop. And that's something that you want, especially if you're consuming a lot of carbohydrates. And it means that you're more insulin sensitive in that situation. So what's happening here? Well, interestingly, fructose shows decreases in this IRS2, this insulin receptor substrate. Uh, two. So the reason why it's got a two is it's because it's a different form. So there are different versions of this particular molecule, this particular protein. So fructose shows massive decreases in IRS2, which would again imply that you're getting lower insulin sensitivity because of this drop in IRS2. Then they wanted to check, okay, well, is another version of IRS, is that maybe upregulated to compensate? And it's not. So fructose shows, although it's not necessarily a decrease uh, because the error bar there, if you're looking at the, at the figures, uh, you might think, well, yeah, there is a bit of a decrease there. Well, technically, statistically, there's no decrease. So uh, there's at least no compensation by IRS-1. You're not seeing an increase in IRS-1 because you're seeing an, a, a decrease in IRS-2. So it seems that fructose in this condition seems to have uh, a negative impact on insulin sensitivity which feeds into some of the, the earlier data that we looked at as well. So now I want to steer us to figure three. Now I realize I'm skipping uh, some particular figures, again, because I'm, I'm not trying to bog us down with a ton of different things. Let me see if I can find figure three. Okay, found figure three. Here it's really basic. This is really simple. Uh, this is simply them taking images. They take liver they take slices from the liver, they put them on plates, and then they use a high-power microscope, or even in this situation, they're probably not even using a super high-power microscope, and then they're staining it with particular colors so that they can tell the differences between particular parts of uh, the liver cell. So you can see the white and some of the, the, the pinkish hue and some of the purple there, and they're just comparing. Uh, control liver compared to fructose, the, the liver of fructose animals. And they're finding, interestingly enough, and this would be they're, they're staining specifically to find out if there's necrosis, so particular type of cell death, which would imply a decrease in liver health, uh, and as well as uh, some, I believe it was, fibrosis, so kind of the 
the uh, inactivity of the, the liver. So kind of, again, both of those would be indications of the liver not being healthy. And what they find is you can see that the, the pictures are pretty much the same. So with fructose, you're not seeing any sort of detriment to the, to the liver uh, based on this histo histology. So histology being just uh, uh, looking at a particular segment of a particular uh, tissue, and in this situation, liver. So here there's some, some decent evidence that fructose does not seem to impact liver our or these animals livers in any negative fashion which is really interesting because we're going to get into a little bit more uh, interesting figures that are going to give us more on that particular story as well so the next thing i want to touch on is table two table two looks a little intimidating but we can really just pick out a few of these uh, different markers. So here they're looking at liver as well as some white adipose tissue, so white fat, so some of the, the body fat that I was talking about earlier, as well as what's found in plasma, so what's found in our blood. Okay, so here I need to point this out, that this is mRNA. So when your genes are expressed, they're expressed and they're uh, transcribed to mRNA, and then from mRNA, which is a different uh, molecule, that gets read and translated to proteins. So just because something is transcribed to mRNA, mRNA can be destroyed or it can be stabilized. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be translated to protein. Just because you have mRNA does not necessarily mean that you have protein. Protein is a better indication in most scenarios than mRNA. But they wanted to do a quick screen of a bunch of different factors, and they did mRNA specifically. So they looked at oxidative stress, they looked at inflammation, and they looked at fibrosis. I'm going to focus on this oxidative stress and inflammation. So... There are a few differences. So they looked at the quantification of mRNA transcripts of these particular genes, and they found that for NRF2, which is nuclear factor erythroid related factor 2, wow, what a mouthful, uh, that actually regulates uh, antioxidants. So it reduces oxidative stress by increasing uh, the antioxidants in that particular region. And what we see with fructose is we see decreases in mRNA expression of that particular uh, enzyme or that particular uh, protein if that mRNA were to be converted to a particular protein. But again, we can't say that definitively. You would actually have to measure the protein quantity itself. So you could see decreases in the mRNA and still see increases in uh, protein. So just want to make sure I, I'm, I'm clear on that. Now, the other, other difference that they saw was in MT1 and 2, which I believe was, yeah, that was in the uh, inflammation section. So you saw decreases again in the fructose condition with MT1 and 2, which are metallothionines which reduce, again, they reduce oxidative stress, which is certainly also implicated in inflammation. So they reduce oxidative stress 
And uh, if you have two high levels, which is an interesting point to, to, to point out, if you have two high levels, then that can lead to cell death. But if you have two low levels, that can also lead to cell death. So there's a nuanced discussion you have to have there. So is fructose decreasing it in a negative way or in a positive way? If I had to take a stab at it, I would probably say a negative way, but you do see decreases uh, compared to the control. So again, if that translates to protein, we don't know. And finally, and this is the most interesting one, by far the most interesting one of this entire table, is a measure of ALT. So ALT, they're looking at plasma and they are looking at protein levels. So they're no longer looking at mRNA in this particular situation. ALT is a clinical measure that uh, a lot of clinicians, a lot of doctors will use to measure how healthy your liver is. So ALT is alanine aminotransferase and it is a marker of liver damage because your, your liver cells have about 3,000 times more of this ALT inside them than essentially any other cell. So if you have liver damage and you have cell death, which is what they looked at with the histology earlier, and they showed no cell death, if, if there were cell death and those cells were to open up to the environment, then all that ALT would then spill out and get into the bloodstream and then you can measure that ALT. So, and so if, if you ever go to the doctor, they measure ALT, that's what they're doing. That's essentially the physiology, the pathophysiology of what's going on there. So what's going on here with fructose is you see decreases, decreases with this ALT in fructose condition, which would imply that you have, especially since it's decreased compared to control, uh, this one measure would be a positive outcome for the fructose condition, which definitely throws a wrench in our interpretation. So, so far up to this point, fructose does not seem to have a negative impact on the liver, but that's not the end of the story. We're gonna, we're gonna keep going here. Okay, figure four. Let me tr give me a second to, to get to figure four. Again, if you're you're certainly free to follow along. I've got things linked uh, for you. Yeah, figure four. Figure four is actually the figure that got me really intrigued in this particular paper because I wanted to know what fructose would do. <clears throat> so figure four A and B, they're measuring glucose. They're measuring blood sugar levels. And I believe, well, maybe it's not blood sugar. Maybe, no, I think it is blood sugar. Yeah, so they're measuring blood sugar levels. And here, interestingly enough, you're seeing that the fasting glucose levels, otherwise known as fasting blood sugar levels, are the same between all three conditions. Control, and here they are incorporating glucose, so now you get this inclusion of this glucose as well as fructose, as well as the control. You see that fasting blood sugar levels are the same. So whatever mechanisms are working, fasting levels are remaining the same. So if that's an increase in insulin to make sure that that clamps at, a, at the similar level, that could be the case. And actually we did see some evidence of that and we'll actually see more evidence of that 
later on. So you see this rise in blood sugar levels because they're they're using fasting levels and then they're injecting a, a set amount of glucose. This is a glucose tolerance test as far as I understand. And then with that, they want to measure what happens to glucose. What happens to that blood sugar that they inject into the animal? Is it staying in the bloodstream? If it's staying in the bloodstream, then you would see this rise, and then it's not going to decrease as quickly. Because once you see this initial rise, you should see insulin compensate, and it starts to rise, and then you get this insulin cascade to let that GLUT4 go up to the cell and allow that blood sugar to go out of the blood into the cells itself to be metabolized and to be dealt with, which is what you want. So interestingly, here you find that with the fructose condition, you see an increase in blood sugar levels once they in inject blood sugar, which is going to happen, but it maintains higher. It stays higher longer than it does with the blood glucose levels. Well, with the glucose condition, excuse me. So the glucose condition and the control condition tend to have a normal response, but the fructose condition tends to delay that response. The, the blood sugar levels stay elevated longer, which is really interesting. And then C and D for four, figure four C and D, they're measuring insulin levels, so blood insulin levels, and they want to know what happens there. So here, again, the fasting levels of insulin are higher in the fructose condition, and I would potentially argue that it's higher in the glucose condition, but apparently it's not statistically significant. I don't know how, uh, but, well, actually, no. Uh, no, that's right, that's right, based on the, the previous table. But in this particular measure, they do show that there's elevated uh, insulin levels with the glucose condition compared to the control condition. So, but that's long-standing. So over time, you have elevated blood insulin levels, which really te is telling. It's essentially telling you that uh, without looking at the cells themselves, just looking at the blood concentrations of blood sugar relative to blood insulin levels, you're seeing that insulin is less effective, meaning insulin insensitivity in this situation with fructose and potentially with glucose, but definitely with the fructose condition. So figure four is really, really intriguing. Okay, let's move on to figure five. Oh man, figure five. Man, oh man, this is, <laughs> uh, bear with me. Figure five is another measure of IRS2. I did mention that before, just to remind you that's insulin receptor substrate. So when insulin binds to the outside of the cell, then you have a, a whisper, kind of a communication between different proteins to allow this kind of uh, one protein whispers to another protein that whispers to another protein. Eventually you get to this master protein, GLUT4, which will move up to the cell membrane and open up the cell membrane to allow glucose or blood sugar to come out of circulation out of your bloodstream into the actual cells themselves. What is happening there? Okay, so IRS2, if you have more of it, typically 
I'm always going to say that because I don't want to talk in absolutes. Typically, that's associated with better insulin sensitivity. More IRS, better insulin sensitivity. So here we see fructose shows lower IRS2, which is completely in line with what they showed earlier. Now, the reason why they're redoing this measure is because they're adding glucose, because they didn't measure the glucose condition with the rats that consume 10% glucose as well as their normal food. And interestingly enough, you see that glucose, the glucose condition does not seem to have a dampening of that IRS2. And again, the two, the number two there is added because that is a particular variation of that insulin receptor substrate. Now, in figure 5B, they're measuring IRS1. So the exact same thing, just a different version of it. And you see that there's no compensatory mechanism. You're not seeing an increase in the fructose condition, just like you did in the previous figure. So this implies that there's insulin insensitivity, not just on the outside of the cell, but also the inside of the cell. Now here's where things get a little bit complicated. So please bear with me. Uh, figure 5C, here they're measuring AKT, and I've mentioned AKT in previous material. I'm going to mention it for, oh man, all kinds of different other areas, other papers. It is an incredibly important molecule. It's something that's measured, and it is also something that is, it's a molecule that's involved in the insulin pathway. So again, the insulin pathway is going to uh, be helped by increasing the activity of AKT. And in this situation, in most situations, if you have a phosphorylation and activation of AKT, that is a benefit to insulin sensitivity. So what do they, what do they show? There's no difference. There's no difference between the fructose condition, the glucose condition, and the control condition. So that's really interesting. So although you're seeing dampening in insulin sensitivity with IRS, if you measure at IRS, you're not seeing that at phospho-AKT. Really interesting. Then they wanted to look at FOXO. FOXO1, there's different iterations of FOXO1. And here, this is, hopefully I can explain this correctly. So FOXO is a protein or a molecule that stays outside of the nucleus. So you, you've heard of the nucleus where DNA is kept. Well, we have what's called transcription factors, and those transcription factors will migrate into the nucleus because the nucleus has its, its, its own bubble. It's essentially its own bubble within the larger cell, which is a bubble itself in a manner of speaking. So it's separated by its own membrane. And when these transcription factors, otherwise known as proteins, particular proteins that will allow themselves into the nucleus, they will then bind to our genes and then express those genes. They'll tell other proteins, okay, read this gene in particular. So FOXO is a transcription factor. Now, if you phosphorylate it, you're adding a phosphate to it it can't move into the nucleus. So you're stopping it from moving into the nucleus. So FOXO is actually inhibited by AKT, the molecule that we just talked about. So 
In this situation, you're 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 essentially deactivating Foxo. And Foxo is typically going to bind to particular genes that increase what's called gluconeogenesis as well as antioxidant enzymes. So it's going to uh, decrease oxidative stress, so decrease inflammatory markers, and it's also going to increase gluconeogenesis, the creation of more blood sugar. So that makes a lot of sense. Why would your liver cells want to create more blood sugar when they are constantly inundated with tons of blood sugar from fructose and from glucose? So in both of those conditions, what do you find? Clearly, you see elevated levels of phosphofoxo. That's a, that's a bit of a mouthful. Phosphofoxo. So it's a deactivated form of foxo. So it can't move in and create more glucose out of other substrates, out of other molecules. So that makes complete sense. And then uh, PepCK, you're seeing no differences in PepCK. So PepCK is phosphoenolpyruvate carboxykinase. Yeah, <laughs> they, it's, it's a mouthful. I, I get that. Uh, Pepsi, that's why they abbreviated Pepsi-K. Pepsi-K is a molecule that's uh, incredibly necessary for that gluconeogenic pathway. So again, moving, uh, mo changing molecules to glucose. You don't want that. You already have so much glucose in the system. There's no need for more glucose. So your cells aren't going to be creating any more glu glucose. So that makes sense. But interestingly, you see no difference between these different conditions. And this is a measure of mRNA, which is a great example here, again, that you can't necessarily rely on mRNA. mRNA gives you clues, no doubt about it, but it doesn't necessarily tell you the absolute truth. So, uh, but beyond that, there's no differences. So it's important to not just measure maybe just one molecule, but measure maybe a few molecules that interact with one another to make sure that you're getting an accurate reading on what's going on. And finally, figure 5F, they're looking at G6PC, which is a glucose 6-phosphatase, which allows it... It's just another molecule, another enzyme that takes takes off a phosphate from glucose. So when glucose enters the cell, I mentioned that GLUT4, you know, GLUT4 goes up to the cell membrane, allows glucose to come out of the, out of the, uh, out of the bloodstream into the cells. Well, once it's inside the cell, it needs a way to stop it from just moving back out of the cell. So what your cells do is they stick a phosphate on it. And they're like, you're mine. This is it. You're done. You're staying in this cell until you're metabolized, until uh, we're able to create energy out of you. And this enzyme reverses that process. So in a gluconeogenic tissue like hepatocytes, like liver cells, it can go through this system and end up removing that phosphate to then eject that blood sugar or that sugar into the blood to make it blood sugar. So what do you think? Of course, you're going to want to decrease the amount of that particular enzyme. And interestingly enough, in the fructose condition, you see decreases in 
mRNA of that particular enzyme. So if that translates to proteins, we would need to find that out by actual pr protein quantification. Okay, so that was quite a bit. Let's move on to figure six. I'm not going to be covering a whole lot on figure six. I really just want to cover uh, 6E and F. Here they're quantifying protein levels of mTOR. If you've been part of the channel, if you've been part of Physionic for a while, you know what mTOR does, but mTOR is a master regulator of growth. So if you have a high energy state, like you would in a high glucose state, a high blood sugar state, then mTOR will typically be elevated unless you've really screwed up your system where your cells don't realize that they're in a high energy state, then you're in pretty bad shape. But typically mTOR is considered growth. So it's muscle growth, liver growth, can be anything any cell that has mTOR and it's activated, so it's been phosphorylated in most situations, that's going to lead to growth. And what do we find here? Well, that phospho-mTOR, so activated mTOR, is increased in the fructose condition as well as the glucose condition. I'm looking at figure 6E if you're following along. And again, uh, just as a quick reminder, I've got the paper linked uh, as well as uh, the my notes that I'm actually going off of here uh, for you to, to to check out. So 6E, you see both elevations in glucose condition as well as with fructose. You see increases in this growth molecule, this mTOR molecule. And then I wanted to quick touch on 6F, which is TSC2. TSC2 is a particular protein that's also phosphorylated or controlled by AKT, which is what I mentioned earlier. And uh, when you phosphorylate TSC2, then that leads to an inhibition of TSC2. But if you inhibit TSC2, then you are allowing mTOR to work. So if TSC2 is not inhibited, then it will, it will inhibit mTOR. So there's kind of an interplay between those two molecules. So AKT at this point has phosphorylated TSC2 to knock it down to allow mTOR to function, which makes complete sense. So you're seeing elevated levels. Uh, there's non-detectable levels in control cells or in control mice, uh, and you're seeing higher levels in the fructose and glucose condition. High amounts of energy. There's a ton of blood sugar around. So of course, there's a lot of energy, and it doesn't know what to do with it, so it's just going to expend that energy by growing. And that's what we see with mTOR and this knockdown or this inhibition of TSC2. Okay, so figure seven. Let's move on to figure seven. Okay, this looks, this looks intimidating. This is actually a really simple figure. Uh, so figure seven, you can essentially ignore all these different Western blots. Uh, just look at the graphs. And here they're breaking up again control, fructose, and glucose conditions. But here they're adding insulin. So they want to know if you artificially inject or add insulin to three different tissues. At the top, A is liver, B is white adipose tissue or body fat, and C, muscle what happens to a single molecule, that important molecule that I was talking about earlier, named AKT. So what happens, again, if you have elevated levels of activated AKT, that's typically seen as insulin sensitive. 
typically seen as insulin sensitive, just as a reminder. So if you add insulin, what would you expect? Well, you would expect AKT levels to increase because you want your cells to be insulin sensitive. So what do we find in figure 7a? That phospho-AKT activated AKT is elevated in the control condition as well as in the glucose condition. So but we don't see that with the fructose condition. I, I realize that that's, that it shows a black bar that's higher than the white bar. So that means that the uh, fructose condition does see elevations in AKT activation compared to non-insulin. So if you don't have insulin in the system, obviously it's going to have lower AKT because you're not getting the stimulus from insulin. But if you add insulin, you should see a, a small bump. But that small bump is still non-significant compared to the non-insulin condition. So just to simplify that, control and glucose are insulin sensitive. Fructose is not, according to this, in the liver specifically. Then if you look at white adipose tissue, you're seeing differences, obviously, in expression in the control condition. You're seeing this massive spike in uh, AKT levels, so obviously that's a good sign. And then the glucose condition, even though it looks a lot smaller, you're still seeing a statistically significant increase in phospho-AKT. And again, fructose, you're not seeing that. So again, fructose, a blunted effect of insulin insulin's impact on uh, adipose tissue or body fat. And finally, in muscle, which is arguably the most insulin-sensitive tissue, which is really cool that they added this in here, you find some differences in the results from the other two tissues. And this should really tell you how important physiology is and just understanding how different tissues react to different things. Typically, you'll see trends in how all the tissues will react. But in this situation, you're seeing that fructose does see an increase in activated AKT with the addition of insulin. So there are no distinct differences between uh, fructose and glucose, although certainly with control, you see greater activation of that AKT molecule. So here you're seeing that there's no decrease in insulin sensitivity with fructose or with glucose, at least relative to one another. Okay, then figure eight. Okay, figure eight is where we're going to be looking a little bit on inflammatory markers. And we're also going to be looking at something, and this, to this totally substantiates something I've been saying uh, a lot. Or I've said a few times. So here they're looking at mRNA levels. And I'm not going to touch on everything, but they look at something like DGAT. Uh, DGAT is a enzyme that also allows for the formation of triglycerides or allows for the formation of fats. And interestingly enough, with the fructose condition, although earlier we showed, they showed, that there are elevated levels of plasma fats, meaning the amounts of fats or triglycerides that are found in the bloodstream uh, in this particular tissue. And I forgot which tissue this was. 
Yeah, I'm not sure which tissue this is. Oh, white adipose tissue. So in body fat, in body fat specifically, you only see an increase in DGAT, so again, that conversion to create more fat in the glucose condition, but not in the fructose condition, which, uh, which is an interesting result, but again, it's mRNA. So then I'm gonna skip B and I'm gonna look at C real quick. And C, they're looking again at this SCD1. Where have we seen that before? In figure one, where they looked at protein levels of SCD1. And the protein levels of SCD1 showed increases in the fructose condition. Do you see increases here? in the fructose condition, maybe relative to control, but you see greater increases or statistically significant increases with the glucose condition of the mRNA. So the mRNA is elevated in the glucose condition, but we saw earlier proof that the protein, which is more important in this situation, that the protein levels are elevated in fructose. So although they don't show significance here, in figure 8C, you are seeing increases in this SCD1. So again, which is uh, this steroid CoA desaturase, which converts saturated fat to unsaturated fat. And then I wanted to quick touch on D and E. Uh, these are different mRNA markers for inflammatory markers. So these are inflammatory markers. And again, you're looking at mRNA. There's no differences. There's no differences between fructose, glucose, or control uh, for these two inflammatory markers, which is really interesting in its own right. And then finally, 8F, you're looking at plasmatic, meaning that, again, you're looking at the bloodstream. Here, bloodstream levels of non-essential fatty acids, again, fats in general, and without insulin, so that means that you're using a glucose or blood sugar independent pathway. So your cells have to get, uh, have to get their ATP, have to get their energy from something other than blood sugar. Well, you see elevated levels of fat, which makes sense because if your bloodstream is not saturated with a bunch of blood sugar, then it has to get that energy from somewhere else. It's going to get it from fat. So your cells are releasing a lot of fat in that situation. But then you inject insulin, and what happens? Well, suddenly all those fats that were found in the bloodstream decrease as they're, re they're taken up by the cells again. And then presumably that's because your cells are going to start prioritizing that insulin sensitive, that, that glucose pathway, that blood sugar pathway. Okay, finally, figure nine, which is the last figure. And this is where things they talk about or they quick measure that GLUT4 protein that I was talking about. So AS160 is an act, is actually activates that GLUT4 protein. So again, the reminder of the insulin cascade, it binds to the outside cell. You get a bunch of molecules that whisper to one another. And then one of those, one of those molecules that whispers is the AS160. AS160 will then whisper to GLUT4 to tell, hey, go up to the cell membrane and allow that blood sugar to come from the blood into the cell so we can get some energy. And of course, because you're adding fructose, you're adding glucose, what happens? You see increases in the fructose 
levels of AS160 as well as the glucose levels of AS160. So you're adding more energy, you're going to have higher levels. And what do we find in GLUT4? Now this is where things, things it, it ends on kind of a high note here uh, or a low note, however you want, you want to look at it. Fructose, the, the, the final protein in that cascade, GLUT4, is decreased in, so again, that extremely important protein that allows that transport of glucose from outside of the cell into the cell is decreased in the fructose condition, but increased in the glucose condition. So what does this imply? Well, it implies that fructose has insulin insensitivity, but also glucose insensitivity if, if you really, if you could say something like that, but definitely insulin insensitivity, which is leading to less movement of glucose from outside of the cell to inside of the cell. But in the glucose condition, you're still maintaining, regardless of all the other molecules, you're still maintaining that, that insulin sensitivity, which shows, although there were some, some areas where glucose and fructose were the same in terms of how they express particular proteins, how they express particular molecules, the end result is that glucose seems to be more insulin sensitive than fructose condition. So a lot of really, really interesting stuff here. So some additional notes that I had written down here is that the rats consume 60% of their energy intake of their calories from fructose. Keep that in mind because, and that's really, really important because context absolutely matters in these kinds of situations because that's considerably more than humans consume. Humans consume around 20, at, at maximum, around 25% of their calories from fructose. And that's kind of in a worst case scenario. So does this necessarily apply? It's tough to say, but... It does seem to show that at really high fructose consumption and really just by the nature of the molecule itself, of the sugar itself, fructose, it seems that fructose does seem to decrease insulin sensitivity that glucose does not. So if you had to pick between the two, most likely you would want to go with glucose. So its impact in diabetes fructose seems to, based on just this paper, seems to have a negative outcome for diabetic individuals or just individuals in general who are trying to avoid diabetes. On the other hand, uh, glucose does not seem to be as, as negative, doesn't seem to have as many of those negative consequences. However, then we looked at inflammatory markers. We looked at liver health just a little bit. I mean, not a whole lot. They didn't investigate that a whole lot. But for inflammation, as well as for liver health, it seems that fructose did not seem to have a negative impact. Now, there you could make an argument, maybe the study didn't last long enough. Maybe it was only eight weeks. You're seeing the, the, the liver having to work really hard. And they actually make a note of this, that there's some evidence in the body of the paper that they mentioned this, that the liver may be protecting itself by converting fructose to these intermediate levels of, 
monounsaturated fats. So that's why you saw this increased level of SCD1, so that steroid uh, enzyme that converts saturated fat to monounsaturated fat. It could be doing that because you see higher levels of lipogenesis. You're seeing higher levels of fat production because of this high energy state. So the, the, the fructose that's coming in, the liver is just taking that immediately and trying to convert it to something else. And it's converting it to what's considered a healthy, quote unquote, healthy fat. Again, context always matters. So, but if this were to persist for longer than eight weeks, maybe that could start to, you know, the liver starts to get really exhausted, starts to really have trouble metabolizing this glucose. And especially maybe in, in elderly individuals, this could be an issue as well. So a lot of really interesting research here, a lot of really interesting findings, but so far, the, the bare bones, what we can take away from this paper is that fructose, the bare bones that we can take away from this is that fructose seems to lead to insulin insensitivity. Glucose does not. Fructose does not lead to issues with inflammation, does not have a negative outcome on inflammation, and does not have a negative outcome on the liver or liver health based off of this paper alone. However, I will have further research that I'll be going over in the future. And with that said, that's where I'm going to end this particular uh, journal club. If you're listening to this on the podcast, then uh, thanks for sticking with it. And if you're watching this live, thanks for sticking with it. I will, of course, take your questions if you are live. And if you're listening to this after the fact on the podcast, then uh, feel free to hit me up with any questions that you might have. And of course, again, I'm going to have more content on this that's going to be more condensed and a lot, lot easier to understand uh, coming in the future. But with that said, that's where I'll conclude this journal club. And I wish you a wonderful day. Have a good one, guys. See ya.